Hello, everyone. I'm Jacob Robertson, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, we had an exciting guest, Patrick, a partner here at Transat Capital, joined us and gave his insights on the current M&A landscape and what you as a business owner can do if you're considering or preparing for an exit. All that and more, so let's dive in. Transact Capital presents Banking on Your Business with Jacob Robertson. Well, Patrick, you know, thanks for joining us today. Uh, really excited to have you here, and uh, and and you know, I know it's been very busy with the firm. So we, yeah. uh, you know, four recent deals that we've closed here, uh, correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we're going to dive into that. You know, get into some, you know, some really good conversations around those. But before we start, I want to give you a chance, just like we give everybody a chance, connect with the listeners, tell your story. I know, you know, you came from GE, spent some time on, on the street. Yeah. Now, let us know, how did you get here? How did you become a, a partner at Transact Capital? You know, kind of fill us in on that. Sure. No, right after uh, right after college, I'm a lot older than I probably look. <laughs> the uh, Right after college, I went to work for General Electric up in Schenectady, New York. And that was in the go-go Jack Welch days, you know, right. when he was the, the, the management god and everybody was looking at it. Uh, it was a... It was a an experience that I will never forget. It left a permanent impression um, just because the level of the caliber of talent and the people that uh, were affiliated with GE in those days, just remarkable. Right. Like really, really smart folks. I feel like I learned an awful lot there. Um, but I wanted to do investment banking. So I left, um, I left GE and I went down to the street for a couple of years, loved the business, but it was just not the right environment for me. So I found my way down to Virginia and um, and I eventually went to work for Dale Carnegie for five years. I was an instructor for them for 19. Okay. okay. Uh, but I was with them full time for, for five years before I joined a real estate investment trust. Okay. And, uh, and so that was grown to about 30,000 units. And then we made a decision to sell the company in 2005. After that, did a um, series of startups uh, with various partners, and uh, which I will... Always think on very, very fondly. It was great experiences getting companies up and running and then eventually handing them off to other folks. And then uh, and then that's when I found Steve, my partner, my current partner at Transact Capital. And okay. he had this okay. investment bank, and I was looking around. I had just finished doing a couple of uh, turnaround assignments for private equity. And, uh, and I said, hey, you know, what are you doing with this investment bank? And he goes, hopefully growing it. And I said, I'd like to be a part of that. And uh, that was in 2012, I believe it was. And I've okay. uh, been there okay. ever since. Yeah, we are predominantly a sell-side investment bank. Okay. Um, we do do some buy-side assignments, but our, our primary function is to, is to help owners of companies, CEOs of companies, founders of companies to experience that liquidity event and put their company safely in the hands of either a strategic buyer or private equity or some other hands so they could go off and do other things within their lives. And uh, so, you know, 85% of our business is going to be on the sell side. And I think one of the things that makes us different, especially even on a regional basis, is that we are an investment bank. And so we are, you know, licensed through FINRA. And, and, uh, and as a result of that, it allows us to really tackle some of the more complex transactions um, that, are on the, that are on the table. And, but I think really it's the hallmark of what, um, when Steve founded the firm 20 years ago that he had, which was a level of integrity that really makes a big difference. And that is we do what we say we're going to do and we deliver really good results. And our uh, our clients, you know, we have longstanding relationships with our clients even after their companies have been have been sold. Uh, they still stay in touch with us on a pretty regular basis. So I think that it is that 
that whole concept that we are going to see you through the transaction and we're going to try to mitigate the bumpy ride that all transactions actually are and that we do it with a level of expertise and a level of caring that you don't really see in this space, especially in deals that are, you know, $150, $200 million and under all the way down to, you know, five, $10 million. Um, you normally don't see this level of banking at this level of the market. Right. And so you think, you know, the culture, I, I would agree that that's a, uh, kind of a, a strength and, and, you know, sets us apart. So, yeah. so, you know, the, the lead into that is, uh, you know, like I said before, we, we have had some, you know, exciting wins, yeah, such a, a broad array and, and variety, uh, mm -hmm. that's, uh, you know, really kind of stands out to me is, you know, it's not just a, we're a single silo, you know, so, so speak to, you know, so two approaches, one, what makes those unique and then what, what makes them, uh, kind of a, a commonality, but yeah, I'm really curious, you know, from those, what stood out to you as the most unique aspects of, of those transactions? The unique, the uniqueness was the sizes because there was a range of size. I mean, you're going from a, you know, $800 million venture down to a 15 to $20 million venture. So there's a, there's certainly a, a spread there per se. They're all still lower middle market, but, um, but it, there's a there's definitely a, a, a size differential between those two. Um, what is unique about it, though, is that every deal is going to be run by a team. And those teams change based on expertise. But at the same time, there's a different team that's running each particular deal. It's not just one individual. It's an entire team of people to make sure that deal gets ushered through so everything gets done cleanly and, and effectively. The couple of things that are similar between all of them all of them um, had exceptional leadership, and okay. that is a that's in a very very important thing at, at the company level. Yeah, at the company right. level, yeah. Right. Then they've and they're really well run. That means they have really solid financials. That means they have really solid uh, second tiers of leadership. Because any company that is that is a cult of personality with the CEO is typically going to be a lot harder to sell. Um, they didn't necessarily have a whole lot of customer concentration issues, so they had thought about that. All three of these companies had thought about that going into the uh, going into the sale process, um, and they all had a forward looking. They all had a forward looking mindset, you know, looking out a couple of years and saying, even if I didn't sell the company, if I held on to it, what would I do with it? How would I grow it? How would I make it better? So those are some more of the commonalities, and the the commonalities far outweigh the differences. Um, because effectively what you're looking for is really high quality companies to be able to move into the market. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, you know, a, a couple key points there. Mm -hmm. It sounds like things that you, you know, you really kind of guided the company through. So what's the interaction between the companies that, that you worked with in, in transacting and yourself? When, whenever anybody hires an investment bank, whether or not it's us or anybody else, there's there's an objective, and that is to get the highest price for the company that you possibly can, right? right. Not everybody's going to have you know, multiple liquidity events in the course of their lives. So they're putting their life's work into the banker's hands. So there is a very real objective of, can I maximize the valuation on this? Because it's got to take care of my progeny for a very long time, right? Yes. My kids, yeah. my grandkids, and, and other things like that. But also, no matter what you're doing, you're selling the company. It's a, um, whenever uh, you're, you're selling a company, it's, it's a tough process to begin with. There's a lot of data that goes along with it. There's a lot of emotion that goes along with it. Um, even some of the bigger companies, when you when you start getting into the billion dollar companies, it becomes a lot less emotional per se. Okay. But yeah. normally down at this end of the market, there's a there's a fair amount of emotion going with it because you have a founder who built this company, 
to as big as it is with as many employees as it has, and their identities are tied into it. Right. So, you know, from a from a banking perspective, it's not just about working hand in hand with the management team to be able to present the best story possible for a very exceptional company. But it's also being able to manage the emotions that they're going through as they're going through that process. Okay. And okay. it's a, it's a, um, you know, sometimes it gets a little bit tough, especially because as deals go on, people get deal fatigue. They don't realize that, you know, it's going to take a little bit longer. Due diligence is going to be harder. And so a large part of what the relationship has to look like is being an advisor, being a guide, um, being somebody who's already been through the jungle and knows the path. And even though the client might not necessarily clearly see the path in front of them, um, giving them comfort and confidence that it's going to happen. Okay. So, yeah, you, you, you mentioned a path and timelines. You know, mm-hmm. what, what are some timelines? And it sounds like there's you know, almost two, two ways to break down or two phases. You have the pre-work that goes into, you know, the sale, and then you have the actual sale process. Am I, am I correct in that? And then what, what are those timelines looking like? Yeah, and, it, and it's especially true with our particular bank, only because we want to make sure that we're bringing on quality companies to be able to sell, right? Anybody can sell, you know, gather something that needs a lot of fixing, a lot of fix-up. Um, but our objective is to bring really high-quality companies to market. So the earlier you get in is usually a little bit better. So even when somebody's thinking about selling their company, if it's, it's going to be a year or two ahead of time, ideally a couple of years ahead of time, but a year or two at least, what it allows us to do is, as the bank goes through due diligence, it allows us to say, oh, you know, we could increase the value of the company if you fixed these three or four things, or if you fixed these two things, or if we did this over this period of time, you know, the, the value is going to be added to the company. And, and so that's that first segment of the pre, really what we'd call the pre-engagement, which okay. is getting the company prepared. Then the timeline actually starts with the engagement letter and saying, okay, we're bringing this company to market. And you're going to have, normally, um, the average company is going to take anywhere from six to eight months to be able to sell. It's just part of that process, especially if you're running a full auction process. Right, okay. And that means that that you're going to have a month or so of prep work, including building out the marketing documents and everything that goes into that. Then you're going to have a month or two of actually marketing the company and going through management presentations and being able to pick the buyers that you are trying to narrow it down to. And then once you have picked up the single buyer mm-hmm. that you're deciding to go with and you are negotiating that LOI and you get the LOI signed and get it done, then due diligence starts. And that's uh, that's a tough process because that can be four to six weeks of, you know, we're we get to see everything that's happening and uh, they get to see all the financials, they get to see everything that's happening within the company, and then you finally get to a close. But that whole process usually takes six to eight months. Okay. The second part, the second answer, and how a seller prepares to do this is to also to assemble your team fairly early. There's going to be four key players in each one of these things. And the first one is, is obviously going to be your investment banker, right? Who is going to represent you when you go to sell the company? Um, there are some people that try to do this alone. It's a complete mistake, right? Or there, there's, there's, you can do an entire podcast on this particular section, but you want to be able to pick a Sherpa that mm-hmm. is going to get you up the mountain and that understands the business, that has the team behind it. Um, super important. And, and frankly, that you respect their opinions because they're going to have to speak truth to power. They're going to have to speak to you and say, your company is good on these points. It's not so good on these points. We need to fix these or we need to adjust this or it's not what you believe that it is. And if you trust and believe in the individual, the banker, 
then you will make those adjustments, you make those changes, or you'll figure out a story that best, that mitigates those. Um, that's point number one. You're going to need your accountant, and your accountant's going to need to be in the loop. What's the time frame? What are we looking at here? Are you on a cash basis? Then we're going to need to switch to accrual before you go to market. There's other things. Where are you in terms of corporate structures and other things? Your account's going to be pretty important. Okay, okay. A deal attorney. You've got to have a deal attorney. Not your divorce attorney, not your real estate attorney. You know, they're all good people. But when you're talking about mergers and acquisitions, when you're talking about, you know, selling your company, you need a deal expert. There's a language. There's an understanding. There is a communication process that goes with the adverse side, the other side of the transaction. And you need a deal attorney that's going to be um, that you trust, that you like, that you can afford and that knows the way there. And then the last thing I would say to people is a wealth manager. Okay. Yep. Right. And most most people forget about this part Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of founders have most of their net worth in the company and they're going to have a liquidity event. And then all of a sudden they're, they're sitting on millions and millions of dollars. And all of a sudden they call their stockbroker and go, Hey, I just got $40 million. I just got $30 million. I just got $10 million, whatever your number is. Right. Right. You know, here, do something with this. And the poor wealth manager sitting there saying, well, it would have been helpful if I would have known that it was coming. Correct. (laughs) Right. right. So those are the four elements, um, the four people that you really need in starting exiting. And so what can a, what can a seller do? Interview and talk to those people early in the process. Let them know what you're doing. They're all going to be under NDA, so they're not going to be blabbing about your situation to anybody else. And it's uh, it's important to secure them early. Okay, and and so it, this has been great. You know, really, you talk a lot about you know, how do you really maximize that exit? How do you maximize that that final valuation? And so, yeah, uh, this is a lot of stuff that the business owner can control, that the team can control. And I'd be curious to get your insights and your thoughts around things that might be out of their control. You know, primarily given in you know today's environment, the rising rate environment, the economic outlook. You know, how do you see those things impacting the current M and A market? Sure, there's there's always going to be from a buyer side. There's always going to be a build versus buy decision to make. It okay. is cheaper okay. for us to be able to build out uh, organically some of the portfolio portfolio companies that we have and their sales markets on things might be cheaper. Or if we can get money cheap, then we just go buy another company, plug it into a platform that we already have. Well, you don't have to be really insightful to understand that when interest rates are rising, money gets very expensive when you have to borrow it from banks, which is what drives most mergers and acquisitions. And so Therefore, the build versus buy decision starts to become a little bit more wonky because you're looking at it and saying, mm, what can we yield on this acquisition versus, you know, how long would it take us to build out this market? So those are certain things that sellers don't control. They don't control the Fed. They don't control the buyers. You know, they kind of control their own little world. But the one thing that they can control is making sure that the company is ready to go when things shift. And the one thing that I will say is high interest rates, low interest rates, it doesn't matter. A-plus companies will always sell. Somebody is always interested in A-plus assets. And that is a company that is well-run, that is very clean financially, that has a clear business and market, that does not necessarily have uh, customer concentration, that has good business processes in place. Those types of companies um, are the ones that move in markets while their interest rates are higher. Low. Are you seeing things as far as you know r- unique structures these days? Uh, you know, are buyers you know requesting 
you know, be it a seller's note or or an extended period of you know the, the team staying on, anything like that that you're also seeing. Yeah, if you if you think about it, all companies are sold based on risk and return. Okay, right? it's right. the same as almost yeah. any security, right? Yeah. Like, like if you're gonna buy a stock, you're gonna buy a General Motors stock. You're basically looking at it and saying, can I get a return on this General Motors stock for the amount of risk that I'm willing to accept within it? And the same thing happens when in in acquisitions, which you start looking and saying, okay, what is the risk and what is the return on that risk that I am putting out there? And so one of the things that you that you start looking at from that perspective is what can a CEO or an owner of a company actually do to, to mitigate some of that risk? Because it naturally, the inverse part of that is, is that it improves the total valuation of the company. And I will, I will say this, the one of the primary things that they can do is to really develop the team that is underneath the CEO, because it is going to be the number one question that we get asked by the buyers, which is what is the, what does the team look like? You know, if somebody steps off the curb and gets hit by the beer truck, does the company still march on? Right. And that's a, right. that's a really important thing. And then, by the way, I want to tie back on something in terms of structures, too. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things that we were seeing a few years ago when interest rates were low is there, there were a lot of cash transactions, right? Right, And, and right. That's, that's, yeah. the, that's the mecca of M&A, which is here's an ultra cash transaction. For a seller, they're totally happy. It's like, look, I got all my money. Right, <laughs> right. right. All, all at once, yes. Yeah. One of the things that we are seeing a, a shift in with that risk and that reward thing that I was talking about a moment ago, um, which is when the company has solid financials, solid team, solid business plan, all the rest of that, risk typically tends to go down. But even now with higher interest rates, we are seeing that the cash portion of a transaction is actually drifting downward. So you're not seeing all cash transactions. You're normally seeing some sort of, um, some sort of on smaller companies, you're seeing a, uh, a seller's note, so they're keeping them in. You're sometimes seeing an earnout uh, on those as well. But okay. what it is, it's 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 shared risk in the company, and that is the buyers are saying, "Look, we're in a we're in a unique environment here. We don't want to put all this capital at risk. So therefore, we would like you, Mr. Seller, to please or Mrs. Seller to please share with us in this risk. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to ask you to carry a little bit of it in a note or on an earnout." to make sure that, that we've got stability in there. And so that's how we're seeing, that's what we're seeing within the market right now changing is going from cash deals, and it's really it's changed, it's past tense. Um, it's gone from cash deals into structured deals. Okay, yeah. And do you think that's gonna conti uh, continue with those trends? I think, I, uh, I do. I think it's gonna, uh, until we have more visibility into the future and what's happening economically, you know, where we are, um, surety breeds cash deals. When people are sure about the future, they're willing to invest that type of cash. Whenever they're unsure about anything, be it politically, be it uh, a market, be it meaning market, broader market like the stock market or an individual market, meaning the market that the company is actually in. Um, if there's any questions about any of those things, that's when that that risk reward teeter totter kind of shifts, right? Okay, and it goes back onto the seller. But I, I would see right now, for the foreseeable future, meaning you know it's it's hard for anybody to predict more than six, eight months, ten months out, right? You know, you get all these prognosticators looking a few years out, and you're like, how do you even know? You right? Know. Yes. Nobody knows. Yeah. But if you take a look over the short and medium term, you know, over the next six months to a year. 
um, as you're starting to see the, you know, to the, as, as we get more clarity on what's going to happen with the economy, as we get more clarity on how people are feeling about the economy and their own economic prospects in it, then you'll start to see that movement back to richer deals in terms of cash. But right now, I'd, I'd say you're going to see structured deals for the immediate future. Okay. Okay. And so as we think about, you know, your, your excitement, your, your, yeah. um, uh, you know, what, what is, as you look at the future of M&A, what, what, what stands out as the most, you know, exciting aspect of it from your point of view? First of all, I just love what we do. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of hard not to. I, just, I tried to explain it to my kids a few years ago and it's like, it's a, for me, it's a puzzle. Every day it's a puzzle. You got a buyer, you got a seller, you got terms, you got transactions, you got markets, you got all of this stuff going on. It's like, how do you how do you take the nine numbers and put them in a box in a way that they all add up, right? right? And when right. you do, you're like, look, I got a deal. Hey, here it is. And that, to me, from both an intellectual standpoint and from a humanistic standpoint, and the gratitude that you get from someone who eventually exits their company, you know, that's a that's a pretty healthy drug, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like, wow, I just help these people go on to bigger and better things within their lives, you know, and 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 get excited about that. But where do I see in terms of M and A? M and A is is always is always going to be around based on what I said a little bit earlier, which is the build versus buy, and there will always be somebody who says, "Hey, we already own this thing. Let's go ahead and add it other things to it." Especially at this end of the market, you also have emerging technologies. So, if you take a look at the prop tech space, you've got thousands of companies that are bringing innovations to the market, and eventually they're going to need one of two things: they're going to need growth capital from private equity or family offices, or even strategics are going to need some way to be able to grow out that company and they're going to end up being acquired or they're going to hold on to the company forever and they're going to eventually be old and they're not going to want to die with the company's stock in their pocket. So, you know, the, the fact is, is that the selling of companies is going to be around for a long, long time. And the imperative for someone who either founded a company or who's running a company is, am I running it in such a way? If you think about it like your car, if you keep your car well-maintained, if you keep it clean, if you get to keep the engine tuned, if you make sure that only people that know how to drive can drive it, you know, let your you know 10-year-old drive the car, they're not going to wreck it and the rest of it, that eventually when it comes time to sell the car, there will always be a buyer for it. And that's the and that, that really is the lesson learned. So how do I feel about M&A going forward? I'm really optimistic about it. Um, I love it. And it's a, uh, and I, and I, and I think that you know, for especially a people at this end of the market, um, it's a it can be a really rewarding, tough, but it's a really rewarding experience. Well, thank you, Patrick. Yeah, I mean that was you know a great summary, and and I'm excited as well. You know, we have a you know a bright future ahead, and uh, you know look forward to you know continue to work with you, continue to celebrate these wins, and, and helping our clients. So thank you very much. You bet. Transact Capital presents banking on your business with Jacob Robertson.